Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's program at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Tracy Chow, founder and CEO of Block Party and your moderator for the program. I'm very pleased to introduce today's speaker, Laura Huang, my good friend. Um, She's an associate professor at Harvard Business School and author of the new book, Edge, Turning Adversity into Advantage. Laura says that success is about gaining an edge, that elusive quality that gives you an upper hand and attracts attention and support. Some people seem to naturally have it. She says the rest of us can create our own successes from the challenges and biases that we think hold us back, turning them to work in our favor. Laura argues that success is rarely just about the quality of our ideas, credentials, and skills, or our effort. Instead, she says, achieving success hinges on how well we shape others' perceptions of our strengths, certainly, but also of our flaws. It's about creating our own edge by confronting the factors that seem like shortcomings and turning them into assets that make others take notice. Laura has a PhD in management from the University of California, Irvine, and before before entering academia, she held positions in investment banking, consulting, and general management in a variety of global locations. No big deal, just overachiever. Today, we're going to have a fascinating conversation about how we can all find our unique edge and keep it sharp. So please welcome Laura Huang. Great. Thank you so much for being here tonight. I'll kick it off with an easy question. Sure. What prompted you to write this book? Oh, that's not an easy question. Um, it's been years in the making, actually. Um, so I have been, I've been studying inequality, disadvantage, people who are underestimated for over a decade. And, you know, it was finding all sorts of negative effects, right? Gender disparities and, um, you know, people who felt like they would put in the hard work and put in the effort, but the hard work wasn't speaking for itself. And it's one of those things where, you know, we we're, we're taught from a really young age that, hard work is the secret to success. You ask Olympians, you ask world record holders, people who are at the top of their game, CEOs, founders, venture capitalists, what's the secret to your success? And inevitably, they will mention hard work as one of those factors. The problem is that at some point in our lives, we come to this realization that hard work alone isn't enough. That Outcomes and success are often determined by signals and perceptions and cues um, that, that, you know, those, those decision makers are not using just our hard work and our effort or even the results that come out of that hard work as their, as their litmus test or as their decision criteria. And so, you know, I, when I was doing all of this research, I would often get the question, so what can we do about this? Are there strategies? Are there tactics that we can take to address the adversity we might face or address the fact that we might be underestimated? Or are there ways to level the playing field? And I realized that so much of research, so much of the research that we did and that we've been doing doesn't have those solutions. And so for the last couple of years, I've really been trying to study how do we try and flip those stereotypes that others might have about us? How do we flip those to our advantage? And, and that was really where, where the book came from. So I first, I think, heard about your research um, that had to do with entrepreneurs pitching investors and uh, how female founders pitching would often get asked questions about downside mitigation, like how are you going to fail, like how are you going to not fail, whereas male founders would get asked questions about um, like how big is this going to be, like all the upside stuff. Um, And it was really interesting to, to see that there was that difference in the questions asked by the investors of the founders, and that impacted them. But what I thought was really cool about that research was that then you had an intervention, um, which was that the founders could try to flip those questions around, and female founders could try to answer the upside questions and um, kind of gear the investors to think about things in those terms. Um, Can you give more examples of interventions like that where you can flip things around when you know that there is a bias that works against you, but they're very clearly studied, like kind of 
tricks or interventions? Yeah, I mean, the research that you're talking about is where we recognize that um, different people based on who you are, when you're engaging in conversation with somebody, you're likely to get asked different questions based on who you are. So for example, women are more likely to get asked questions focused around risk or competition or weaknesses, um, things that you're feeling um, uncertain about. And men are more likely to get asked questions about the opportunity and how big you could take something or the vision. Um, and it's not just men and women, right? We, we, we looked at, you know, people who have a technical background, people who, um, people of color, you know, all sorts of different aspects were, were determining whether or not you're getting asked these very risk-focused questions or opportunity-focused questions. And the problem is that when you get asked a risk-focused question, you then respond in turn by then keeping your response very focused on the risks and the challenges. Um, and if you get asked questions that are about the opportunity, you're able to go in lots of directions and talk about the possibilities. And so that colors people's perceptions of you and the outcomes. One of the earliest um, studies that I did was looking at, you know, this was even before looking at um, you know, the typical cast of characters, gender, race, ethnicity. Um, I was looking at accent and who has an accent and who doesn't. And I started doing this research because I had noticed, um, so my parents were immigrants from Taiwan, and I had noticed that my dad had gotten passed over for promotion after promotion after promotion. And in one of those promotions, um, the person who ended up becoming his boss, my father was doing his job because that person wasn't qualified to be in that role. And I started to wonder, you know, what was this about? Was it about, um, you know, was it about his accent? Was it the fact that he didn't have a standard uh, American accent? And so when I then started doing research, that was one of the first questions that I looked at. And, um, you know, what we typically assume is that accent is about communication, that it's, it's about not being able to communicate your ideas as well. But in fact, what we found was that there's always underlying perceptions that that people are are you know people are attributing to you and in fact it wasn't about communication because we would randomly have different people communicating pitching their ventures and we found no difference in terms of what investors would learn in terms of what they would recall and remember um, but it was things like how interpersonally influential you were or how good of a team player you were or how well you're able to think outside the box and so what I then did was I would have those accented individuals go into situations that they had previously found negative, you know, getting hired into top management team positions, getting raises, um, and instead, for example, have them go into an interview situation and I would tell them, the perception that they have about you is that you're not as interpersonally skilled, or the perception they have about you is that you don't, you're not a team player, so then when they would get asked the question, you know, tell me about a time when, you know, those typical interview questions that we get, they would then give responses around, you know, telling the, the interview about our time when they fought for resources for their team or when they didn't stop until they closed that deal. And when they did that, what I found was not only were they just as likely to get the job or the promotion or that top management team position, but they were actually more likely because what they were doing was, in a very benign way, they, had, they were already being perceived with their assets and their strengths, but they were flipping those perceptions of those negative, underestimated skills and flipping them in a way that now gave them that edge, that gave them that extra advantage. And it was really benign in the way they did that, in the sense that, you know, we don't, they didn't go in saying, I know it's because I have an accent that you think. X, Y, Z. We don't, you know, when, when we don't want to go into situations and say, I know it's because I'm a woman that I think, because then we're in the situation where we are confronting, where that person automatically has to say, oh, no, 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 no. They, I would never think that about you. But underlying that are lots of assumptions. 
And I'll give you one more quick example, which is that I've done some work on ageism, Mm -hmm. which is a big deal, especially in the startup sort of world and in the startup ecosystem. And we assume things about people who are older employees, things like they might not be as technically skilled or they are proficient with technology, Um, lots of different assumptions that we make. But the underlying assumption, there's only one factor that that assumption is based on. It's about curiosity. It's about how curious are you? Have you lost your ability to be curious about what's happening? And so when those folks go into an interview situation or in some sort of interpersonal interaction, ask questions like, I'm really curious about how you got to this, about your strategy, or I'm curious about the vision that inoculates them in in such a way that they now see them as suddenly being curious and moving with the company and growing with the company and learning the technology and contributing to the strategy and the vision in a very different way. And so those are the sort of ways that we can redirect and guide those perceptions that that other people have of us. Mm -hmm. So um, I think the... The title of your book, Edge, is quite clever as it's both about how do you, you know, make your edge sharp and find your edge, but it also is an acronym for Enrich, Delight, Guide, and Effort. Um, Can you just talk through a little bit of each of those components? And I really like this framing as an engineer where I like things (laughs) broken out for me so I can apply them. Yeah, it's broken out, it's parsimonious. Um, So yeah, so Edge is really, you know, it's a book about how do you find and gain your edge. Um, It's a book about how some people naturally have an advantage um, and sometimes that's us, but sometimes it's not. And so in those contexts, when we don't have an advantage, how do we create and gain our own edge? And the framework that I, um, that I developed through a lot of both my research as well as lots of stories from, from people who have had to face adversity and try and come out from the other end of it. And, you know, there are, I tried really hard to not only tell stories about, those well-known people that we know have faced adversity, you know, people that we can, that we've heard about, that we know. Um, But the majority of the stories are about everyday ordinary people, because I thought, you know, I just think it's really important to understand that we all face these things. And how do we, how do we actually craft our own path? And so EDGE stands for that framework, that perspective for how you can do it. And the E is for enrich. Because, you know, the first thing is to really understand how you enrich and provide value in different circumstances, in different contexts, to know what are your superpowers? What are those basic goods that really make you who you are? Um, You know, I talk about how um, when, you know, for example, when my mother is, my Taiwanese mother goes to cook a dish, right? She starts with, she can cook basically, she can cook so many different things, but she always starts with soy sauce and sesame oil and ginger and scallions. And so that's the essence of every dish that she sort of creates, that there's all these tastes and flavors, but you can taste those, those basic goods. My Italian husband, on the other hand, starts with, you know, olive oil and garlic and, you know, prosciutto and a glass of red wine on the side. And it's, that's the essence of any dish. And you can make lots of different dishes, but it still has that. And so enriching and knowing how you enrich and provide value, even though you might be in different situations in different contexts, what are those basic goods that really make you who you are? The problem, however, is that a lot of times we don't get the opportunity to show how we enrich and provide value. Uh, We go into situations or we're interacting with people and we either don't belong to the right groups or we don't have the right networks or for for whatever reason, we don't have that opportunity or that chance. And that's why the D, delight, is so important because when you go into situations, when you're able to delight somebody else, when you're able to delight your counterpart, that's the equivalent of being able to crack that door open a bit and have that person sort of pause and say, huh, I didn't see that dimension of you. I didn't see that facet of you. And what happens is that when you're able to delight someone and have them kind of 
pause in that and just sit for a second with that. That's when they want to ask questions. That's when they want to say like, wait a second. And that's when you get that opportunity to enrich and show how you provide value. And the delight piece of it is, is really hard to kind of understand what that, that feels like and, and what that is. But I always liken it to, um, you know, that first time you were in an Uber, like think back to the very first time you sat in an Uber, like forget all the other stuff about the management and all the, you know, like harassment, I'll forget all that for a second. We'll get to that later. Um, but that very first time you were in an Uber, it was this feeling of, oh, this is interesting and sort of terrifying. Like I'm in the car of a stranger and he or she just knows where they're taking me and I'm not going to give them any money. And, and so it's this feeling of that made you sort of, it was like this surprising kind of counterintuitive feeling when you, when, when you're, when somebody else feels that that's when you're able to really delight them And that's when you have that opportunity to show how you enrich and provide value. The G is for guide because it doesn't end there. Even when you do provide value and are able to delight your counterpart, you need to guide people's perceptions of you. This is where that flipping things in your favor. This is where, you know, people are going to be having perceptions and making attributions about you. And you need to continue to guide them to how they should see you. It's not just your traits. It's also your trajectory, where you've been and where they think you're going. Um, When you're able to kind of guide them, that's when you're able to have that much deeper and more authentic relationship. And the final E is for effort, Um, effort and hard work, because hard work and effort actually comes last in this framework. We often think that effort and hard work comes first, that if we put in that hard work, that it'll speak for itself. But in fact, when we know how we enrich and delight and guide, that's when our effort and hard work actually works harder for us. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of the overarching framework. I was actually just writing um, a blog post uh, the other day, um, kind of like reflecting on my journey as a startup founder and some of the adversity I faced and was thinking a lot about um, all the things that you wrote about in your book um, But also some questions came to mind around systemic bias and uh, a lot of the adversity that you talk about is systemic bias. There's also adversity that might be just unlucky, um, like if you come down with a chronic illness or just something that's just unlucky, um, that's a disadvantage. But when the adversity is a systemic problem and it's something that in theory people should be able to address and fix, um, how do you think uh, we should be balancing kind of like helping people to navigate a broken system versus fixing the system? Yeah. I mean, I think there's this, there is very, when we think about structurally, I mean, structurally, there are things that are wrong. There are structurally things that are very, very wrong. And the issue is that we, we should try and change them and we can change them, but we've been talking about this for a really long time. I mean, we've been, we've been trying to, to fix things like gender parity and um, thinking about things like class differences and, and, you know, discrimination based on, on things like religion and sexual orientation. And we've been talking about this for a really long time. And so on the one hand, yes, these things have to change. But on the other hand, we need to be able to empower ourselves to create our own advantage, create our own edge, even within an imperfect system. Knowing that things may change, or maybe they will change, but too slowly, or maybe they will change, but not in the ways that we intend them to change. We still need to be able to, from the inside out, be changing. And so structurally, we need to be from the outside in making things more equitable, but we also need to be from the inside out affecting what those structures look like. And one of the ways that we do that is by empowering our, ourselves um, to do so. What's tricky also is that a lot of the systemic and structural changes that we're making, um, we we tend to think we'll be doing more than it actually will. So I'll give you an example of this. Some of the, that research that you had mentioned before around how um, men and women, male and female entrepreneurs are getting asked different questions. 
Well, I find in my research that actually both male and female investors are just as likely to be asking female questions that are about risk and male, male entrepreneurs about opportunity. And so when we have solutions like putting more women in, um, as put it, getting more women mentors, getting more women who are investors, having more diverse, that's definitely not going to hurt. It's definitely what we want to be striving towards, but that can't be the only solution. We need to be able to behaviorally change from the inside and be empowering people to change so that the, the inside is changing that structure as well. Mm-hmm. It just feels a bit like um, when we talk too much to the people who are the disadvantaged and underestimated and have to figure out how to navigate this, that we kind of um, put attention away from the people who do have power and who should be changing the system. They're the ones that have the ability to fix the broken system. Um, How do you kind of address that sort of like shifting of attention away towards the, the people who are already underestimated who now have to work smarter and harder. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of components to that. I mean, I think the first is that I talk a lot about how everyone has something, right? And we tend to automatically be creating this, you know, this, uh, this, um, almost like disparity or these differences between people who have it worse or people who have it, who don't have it, you know, don't have advantage. And then the people who, who do, but it's really not that cut and dried. Everyone has, has something. I was talking with, um, you know, Ronan Farrow not too long ago. And he, you know, he is like the epitome of what we would consider privilege, right? He's a white cis male whose mother is Mia Farrow. Um, he's a Pulitzer prize winning journalist, all these sorts of things. And he was saying that whenever he steps into a room, he also, he feels like there, there are these perceptions and these attributions being made about him that he only gets interviews with people because of who he is, that he only won the Pulitzer prize because of who he is, right? Everyone has something. Some are visible differences. Some are invisible differences. When we recognize that it allows us to, to not make some things so confrontational and adversarial. And what I, what I think about a lot is that, you know, who among us has not had that instance where we've said something and then we've thought, you know, later on down the road, like, oh, I hope that person didn't think that I meant that. I think that they thought that I meant that, but I actually didn't, right? We've all had that, that scenario where we feel like we might have misspoken, but didn't really have the opportunity to clear it up. Yet when we are spoken to and we, we take sort of that affront so easily. Uh, so I talk a lot about this sort of difference between intent and impact, and thinking a lot about the impact of something versus what the intent was. What also is embedded in that is this ability to allow ourselves to not only experience failure, but also embarrassment and those, those drawdowns. Because a lot of times what happens is that we're either, we fail in something or we're confronted or we're embarrassed. And then we say, never again. Like I will never put myself in that situation again. But in fact, those are the situations in which we should be doubling down. Like we should double down because in that embarrassment, in that confrontation, in that failure, there's so much data in those emotions. There's so much that it tells us about what we care about. There's so much that it tells us about, you know, our values and why we still feel bitter about something. Um, And, you know, the whole last chapter of my book is about bitterness and feeling jaded because, you know, it was something that I was struggling with as well is that, you know, I ask students sometimes, like, think of a time when you feel like somebody wronged you or something, you know, was really just wrong and, and you still feel that chip on your shoulder. And within 10 seconds, people can think of something that from three years ago or a decade ago that still bothers them. Like this person who did this or this person who like, you know, and so the last chapter is all about bitterness and being jaded and how when we are feeling bitter, we should be asking ourselves, you know, how is this, if this is making me bitter, instead of asking ourselves the, 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 the question about how is this making me bitter, asking ourselves, how, is this, how can this make me better? 
How can we take that bitterness and turn it to betterness, right? How can we think about that? Because there's so much information there. And I feel like that's where um, both the disadvantaged as well as the advantaged people, if we take that sort of perspective, we're, we'll be able to um, you know, get to a place where we do have these deeper, richer interpersonal interactions. That part of the book about confronting or dealing with the bitterness was, uh, I think, the part of the book that made me feel the most strongly in, in any which way. And um, when I was reflecting on that, I was thinking about a book I read last year called uh, Rage Becomes Her, uh-huh. which is about the power of women's anger. And the gist of the book is that it's good and totally acceptable to be angry about injustice because it means that you're not accepting it anymore. And this book really spoke to me because um, I guess I am angry a lot. <laughs> but, but usually about systemic injustice and thinking about how to, to fix things. And I've frequently been told by men on the internet that I need to be less angry. <laughs> Happens every day. Um, and so this, this idea of like letting go of bitterness um, or actually holding on to the anger as something that is powerful and something that drives change. That was when I was grappling a little bit yeah. to, um, to, to hold simultaneously. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's about letting it go. It's about harnessing it in a way that does let you make it better. It's not going to go away. You're still going to have those sort of things, but rather than letting it leave you bitter and jaded and not, and sort of just now ignoring those sorts of things and instead harness it to let, to have it make you better and, and to really embrace those, those emotions and embrace why you're so uncomfortable with that because there's so much truth that's also in there. The other reason that it's really hard is because we often, especially in those situations where we feel like the odds are against us or that we're upset or that we feel really passionately about it, something, we go in with a stance of advocacy. Like we're going to fight for this. Here are, we go in, we think like, okay, here are my 10 best points. And I'm going to go into this meeting or I'm going to approach this person and I'm going to convince them. I'm going to say, here are these things. And they're going to now say, like, that was such a great point. I've changed my mind. But that just doesn't happen because what happens is that when we come at them or we kind of come at somebody else with our 10 best points, they've also got their 10 best points that they're trying to convince us of. And it just becomes this confrontational sort of thing. And so rather than going into situations with this advocacy sort of thing, harness that anger, harness that anger in a different way. And this is hard because when we do care so passionately about something, that's when we go on, come on strongest. Instead, I talk about how we should take more of an inquiring stance, more of an inquiring orientation. When we do that, we can, that's the equivalent of going into a situation and saying, help me understand how you got to this and I got to this or help me understand why, you know, and when you do that, you start this conversation, you start this, you, you have the ability not only to be understanding that perspective, you're honing your ability to see how they're perceiving you, which gives you power to then flip their perceptions in your favor, right? So when you do this sort of, when you go in with more of that inquiring mindset, you're able to actually convince and, 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 and change those perceptions in, in, a, in a very different way. Um, and, you know, again, it's, it's, it's a very difficult sort of thing to do. But when you're able to do that, you really kind of see the power of not going into situations with this pitch or this sell mindset. And instead, you go in with, into situations with this conversational sort of thing. And when you do that, that gives you the ability to improvise. And when you can improvise, you have the opportunity to delight. And when you delight, you have the ability to then show how you provide value and how your perspective is actually a really legitimate, credible one that should be taken seriously. On the um, kind of like question of confrontation, one of the questions from the audience was, are there 
specific scenarios where confrontation is a more effective strategy than guiding or kind of like redirecting in these different ways? Yeah, I mean, there are absolutely, I mean, it, it definitely depends on the context. Um, you know, there is, it's, it, it makes me, it makes me chuckle a little bit because, you know, when I think about the context, I had a student who um, was telling me about how he was trying to get this internship. This is an internship that all these students wanted. And um, so there's like this very coveted private equity internship and he, he got it. And then he realized that it was an unpaid internship. And so he was like, I can't take an unpaid. He's like telling me like, I can't take an unpaid internship. And I said, yeah. And he said, so I realized, and they were offering this to me. And then he, he said like the interview told the, the person was like, you got the job. Congratulations. We're so excited to have you on board. And then when he realized that it was unpaid, he said, well, I, need to get paid. And he's like, well, we don't, there's, there's like 10 other people lined up waiting for this internship. We don't pay. And he said to the person, he said, people who don't get paid do shit work and I don't do shit work. So I should get paid. (laughs) And he got paid. And so, you know, in some instances, we need to take, excuse my language, it's, um, but, uh, but in a lot of instances, we need to take that more affrontive, con- like, you know, it worked in that context. What I talk about is that it's so important to be able to hone our gut feel. So I studied one of the first things, my dissertation I wrote on gut feel, um, I'm laughing because my my brother always jokes that, you know, whenever he sees, he's like, hey, it's a gut feel, you know, like that's sort of his his tagline to me. He even wrote it on a on a hoodie once. Um, but that gut feel is so important. It's that gut feel is what allows us to understand in what contexts, for example, we should be more analytical in what context we shouldn't be data driven at all and we should totally be driven by our intuition, in what context we're going to be seen in one light or verse or another light. And I talk about how we can absolutely hone this ability to see this. Um, I've done some research that has looked at forward flow and semantic distance. And so how you can actually think about things and how, how you can hone your ability to, um, to be able to know how people see you, but in a more kind of you know, a a quicker way to explain this is life rhymes. And what I mean by that is we have these situations in our life where something happens and we feel like something either doesn't sit right or we have this kind of something's nagging at us. And then we'll be in another situation and it might be a completely different context or with a completely different group of people. But that that interaction will make us feel that same way, that same nagging feeling or that same feeling that something's not quite sitting right with us. And as we start to have these, these different, these different experiences, these different experiences where life rhymes, that's where we start to build up our mental models and our schemas and our intuition and our ability to perceive in what instances we should push and come off stronger. And in what instances we should perhaps be more inquiring and have that inquisitive orientation. And so I talk about strategies for how we can actually hone that. Um, And that's part of this piece of enriching and knowing how you provide value. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. Um, it's funny hearing you talk about these like kind of life rhymes because all it makes me think of is um, as a female engineer and now female founder, uh, I do have a lot of these life rhymes of being <laughs> underestimated by men and, and treated worse for it. And when I think about how to apply your advice, um, so like understanding the patterns is it's very useful first to try to address it, um, but then not necessarily being so confrontational. Um, I get a bit frustrated when the burden of dealing with 
systemic bias is on the people who are disadvantaged. Yeah. And the burden of educating people mm-hmm. is on the people who have to suffer. Um, and I, I've had a, a lot of frustrating conversations with pe- like with white men, say, who would complain, like, you can't expect me to learn if you're not willing to teach. Mm-hmm. Like, that's incorrect. Um, there's Google. <laughs> there are plenty <laughs> of books you can learn. But it feels like the, the that burden still falls on the people who are disadvantaged. And um, I think there's different approaches to advocacy and activism. Some of it is very direct and uh, just laying it all out there and actually like being allowed to be angry um, and express tone. So like letting people understand the weight of the the bias or the oppression and not um, softening it for them. But at the same time, I've I've seen as as you're saying, like if you're too direct and confronting someone, then it just gets their defenses up, and they won't even listen to you. Yeah, I mean, there's a number of different pieces there, right? I mean, that burden piece. Um, part of it is knowing how it, it's again sort of really understanding how different people perceive you in different circumstances and different contexts. So an example of this is you know, for there's this, there's this expectation or there's these feminine stereotypes that people might have of a woman who is an entrepreneur. And what we're looking for, what we do in our lives is we look for congruence. We look for, does this match? Does this fit? And if we see, for example, and and some of it's very implicit, this is not always an explicit sort of thing. Um, And what happens is that an investor, for example, might see a woman who he's expecting implicitly to be warm and communal and applicable to all of those sort of feminine type stereotypes. And then if she happens to be then in a very masculine dominated industry, right? And Uh, there's this mismatch between that masculine dominated aggressiveness that might be necessary in that context and that individual and sort of flipping things in your, in your favor. What I found in, in, for example, one research project that I was working on was that um, when women are in a male dominated or a masculine typed industry, but they then give even just one little hint or one little perspective around how they are also warm and communal. So for example, like this is actually, this is a super, I don't know, technical physicist, blah, 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 but it's going to help a lot of people, right? Just that one, it creates more of a congruence and it not only allows those women to level the playing field, but actually gives them an advantage because now they're seen as warm and comp- warm. Yes. We've checked off that box and now we can actually see all of their competence that comes out of it. The tricky thing is that there's this burden piece of it, right? That you're mentioning, like should women or should people who are in it at a disadvantage have to be the ones to do that? So, I mean, in an ideal world, no, they shouldn't, that they should be able to carry, but at, they should be able to carry that anger and there should be permission to carry that anger. But again, it has to be harnessed in a way that you can carry that while still empowering yourself to, to do something about it. And so, you know, the, the piece of this, the piece of knowing how you enrich and provide value, that's that power you have. Those are your superpowers that you own that are authentically you that allow you to still harness that anger in a way that is, is still effective. And like the third piece of it really is that, that sort of speaks to this burden piece as well, is that a lot of people kind of come to me and say, not necessarily around the burden, but they say, you know, this feels like, this feels strategic. Like it feels manipulative. Like I'm trying to manage impressions that I'm trying to show, show people something. And and we've all had those experiences where we see somebody who's like kissing up to the boss or doing something. And we're like, we don't want to, like, we don't want to be that person. It just feels gross. Right. This is actually the opposite of that because what you're doing is guiding people's perceptions to who you authentically are. People are going to have a perception of you regardless of whether you guide them to one or not. And people are going to, as soon as they meet you, be trying to write a story about who you are 
regardless of whether you help them with what that narrative actually is or not. And so on the one hand, it is a burden, but on the other hand, they're going to be doing it anyways. And changing that perception after that, that first impression is incorrect is even more burdensome than sort of helping them write that narrative about, about, who, you, about who you are. And I think the sort of last piece of, of this is that, you know, when we, when we talk about sort of this, is it, is it strategic? Is, does it feel tactical or manipulative in a way? I mean, we give people the advice all the time, like, be yourself, right? If you're, someone's interviewing for a job, like, just be yourself. You'll, you'll do great. Just be yourself. Or they're giving a big presentation. Just be yourself. Um, or they're going on a date. Just be yourself. That's actually horrible advice. <laughs> be yourself is actually horrible advice and not because of what you think I'm going to say. It's because people are these, people are complicated and varied versions of, you know, there's so many different versions of what people are. I, I talk about this analogy. I, I talk about how people are like diamonds and we're all a diamond. We're all, and we have so many different facets to us, different angles, flaws, different ways that we shine based on the lighting or the environment or who's looking at the diamond and at what angle. And when you are guiding people and when you're trying to, to guide them to who you authentically are, that's the equivalent of just showing them that angle of your diamond that you know is going to shine the brightest based on who that person is and the lighting that they're under and the context that they're in. So when we say be yourself, there's just so many different facets and different ways that you should embrace the, the flaws and the, the assets and the brightness and all of those sorts of things, but just be guiding people to, to that, that different, that, that different angle. And, and so the burden absolutely does rest on the people who are underestimated, but even those who are not underestimated are doing this all the time as well. And so thinking about, about that and, and, um, when you're able to do that and then you actually put in the hard work and effort you really do get those tailwinds. So this idea of being able to show different versions of yourself to different people, different situations, um, I think it works better when you know, it's in real life or like you're actually directly meeting somebody. Um, in a world where a lot of people are building digital personalities or profiles, and you know, like I have a Twitter account where I tweet a lot of random things. There are a lot of different facets of my life, but it's all out there for all my followers to see. So it's harder to sort of customize like what I present to different people. Yeah. Um, how would you advise like thinking through that kind of a, all of us, I'm sure like have some sort of online profile. Like how do we think through what we present there when now it's more and more likely that like a, you know, potential employer or investor or business partner might look you up online and mm -hmm. see something. Yeah. I mean, I think in those ways, even when we're thinking like when we're thinking about our online presence or we're thinking about lots of different diverse sort of audiences, it goes back to like, what are your basic goods? Right. And if you are, um, if you are, you know, it's, it's, it's similar to like companies that are trying to grow and scale. Um, there's so many companies that start out doing something really, really good and that they have that those like two or three things that really make them what they are. And then as they try and grow and scale and, 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 you know, position themselves to lots of different audiences and different customer segments, they lose sight of that. And they, they get into trouble. So, I mean, imagine you go to a restaurant and this is like, I don't know, it's a, it's a restaurant that's, that, um, it's an Italian restaurant and everyone goes there in the beginning because they've got really great bread, right? And then they sort of get more customers coming in and they're expanding their menu and they have all these sorts of things and they sort of lose sight of like that bread was what everyone was coming for. You need to go back to that basic good, literally here, bread, your bread and butter. But, um, but you know, comp companies, they need to, as you grow, you need to prune. You're not going to grow unless you prune. Trees cannot grow unless you're pruning them and getting rid of the stuff that's sort of, you know, uh, the tangential and, and, and not a part, a core part of it. And when we try and manage all of these diverse sort of social media things mm -hmm. and all the different people, 
we can sort of tiptoe out and we can go, go things, but as long as we sort of keep that bread and butter as our main focus and then continue to sort of, um, tag off of that. I talk about a company in the book called Bucky's. I don't know if anyone in California, has anyone heard of Bucky's? Okay. <laughs> Raise your hand proudly. I mean, Bucky's is this amazing company. They are this. So Bucky's is a, essentially it's a gas station. Okay. Um, it's a gas station that started in Texas. And, um, my, my husband and kids and I were on this road trip in, in Texas. And my mother-in-law who now lives in Houston was, as we were leaving, she shouted at us, don't forget to stop at Bucky's. And I'm like, what in the Bucky's? What is it? And my husband was like, it's fine. It's fine. Just get in the car. I'll explain to you in a second. And, um, and so I was like, she, and he's like, it's a gas station. And I'm like, why is she so obsessed with, with Bucky's? Well, we go to this Bucky's on our, on our road trip. We stop at this gas station and I got to tell you, I mean, I was like, I did not want to leave this gas station. I was like, oh my gosh, this is the most amazing. I mean, the rest of the road trip, I was researching Bucky's and their founders. And so let me tell you, Bucky started because they're, they're, the, the co-founders were like, why do people on road trips go to gas stations? They go because of they want to get gas and they need to go to the bathroom, right? That's pretty much, and in Texas, they want ice for their Dr. Pepper and whatever, okay. So they were like, we're gonna be really good at these three things, gas, bathrooms, and ice. So you go into these Bucky's, there are like 50 gas pumps. The bathrooms were named the cleanest bathrooms in America. You go in and you're like, I should remodel my bathroom to look like this. I mean, they are amazing and they have ice and they have expanded now. So now they have huge car washes. They have their own line of Bucky's popcorn, caramel. I don't know, all these sort of things. They call them, I don't know, nuggets or something. I don't know what they're called. Someone who, and they've got their own stuffed animals. It's Bucky the beaver. They've got t-shirts that have like these funny little puns. And they make so much money off of all of these extras. And I was talking to the founders and they were telling me about how like they make so their that most of their margin and most of their profit comes from this, um, you know, the, the food and the stuffed animals and the, the like little, you know, all of the sort of things that they're selling and their car wash and all these extra things. And they said, but every time we start to think about how we should, we go back to, let's make sure that the gas, we have got plenty of gas pumps. We've got the cleanest bathrooms in America and we're stocked with ice because people will not stop there. Even if you've got all these other things and they've got this whole brand around, you must stop at Bucky's if you don't have those basic goods. And it's sort of the same kind of thing. That's a really long-winded answer to what you were asking, but um, hopefully that answered your question. Yeah, well, I think with social media, we talk a lot about authenticity and how like now... Um, you know, it's, it's better just be yourself. Or yeah, but I already told you that's your, horrible advice. Being, being yourself, yourself is horrible advice. Sort of, being yeah. authentic is horrible advice because what do we mean by authentic? Like who I am with my mother is very different from who I am with my friends, which is very different from who I am with my students, right? Or, or my dean, right? We have so many different versions of ourselves and what does authentic mean, right? And so you can very much combine um, all of those different ways. And I talk in the book about how you think about what authenticity mm-hmm. really means. And there's some people who think about authenticity in terms of integrating all of their varied and diverse, d- diverse identities, right? So I talk, um, you know, wonderful example of a woman named Ashley Edwards who started a company called MindRight, um, where she um, grew up in inner city Newark, New Jersey, um, ended up going to Stanford and Yale, and started this company, which kind of bridges the two. And so she's constantly sort of, you know, code switching and doing these sort of things. And I talk about how she finally embraced all of these different aspects of herself because she realized that she was able to just as easily talk about goddess braids as she was about, you know, um, burning man, burning man. Oh yeah. Thank you. Thanks. You remember that example. Um, 
<laughs> yeah, and Burning Man and all of these these different um, things, and so how she really integrated. Whereas you know other people don't integrate, but instead they're able to really blend. And um, so I, I talk about this is this is like the one and only time that I ever thought I would quote Ashton Kutcher. So I don't know, but Ashton Kutcher once was was asked this question, like, so, you know, Ashton Kusher has this struggle as well in terms of his multiple identities, his agents and all of these people were always saying, you know, you have to do these rom-coms where you're like the goofy, you know, you're the goofy romantic hero of these movies. And he was like, no, 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 but I want to do artistic films. I want to do films like Jobs and, and these things where I have like a really meaningful thing. And they're like, no, 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 because your audience, the way that you make your money, and the way that you're relevant is by being that goofy, you know, assassin or that turns into the, the, like the, I don't know, the boyfriend or something. And, um, and so I asked him, I said, well, how do you, like, what do you do? And he go, he said, so this is the brilliant quote. He said, I do for one for me and one for them. And what he meant by that, and he sort of explained, was that we all have these different identities and these different people and these different things, and we have these responsibilities. And if, if Ashton Kutcher doesn't do these movies where he's the romantic hero, he's going to lose that kind of audience. But at the same time, he has all these other things that he wants to do. So he does one for me and one for them, where he does, or, you know, where he does one film that is, where he is that, 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 you know, that romantic lead. And then he does one where he's, he's, that's really for him. That's, that really feel, that he feels passionately about, that's really artistic and for him. And then he goes back and he does one for them and one for me. And in our lives, we sometimes try and say, well, we have to be authentic. We have to just do what we're passionate about. And then, but that also sometimes leads us to not having those, that audience or that responsibility or those, that baseline of what we need. And so that's how Ashton Kutcher kind of balances. But we ha- all have our different ways of integrating these, these different personas or these different identities or these different ways of being truly authentic, whether it's how Ashley Edwards does it or it's how Ashton Kutcher does it or how my friend Beatrice, who I talk about in the book as well, does it. So lots of different ways. It's actually a question from the audience. It's on a similar topic. Um, How important is being transparent at work and really being authentic? Um, I.e., should you let your emotions show or should you be diplomatic and use corporate speak uh, to keep things strategic and manage impressions? Like, how do you balance it? Yeah, I mean, I think... I think it's important to be authentic and yourself, but know what hills to die on. And you know, know that when you're going into situations, sometimes we fight just because we're fighting and we're out of principle or because we want to be who we are. And that's totally fine, but make sure you're willing to die on that hill, right? So make sure what what that means is like, if you're playing poker, know which ones you're going to put your chips in, know when to kind of hold back. And even though you think you might win, that you're saving it because you know, you've got a bigger hand coming. Or knowing when you want to sort of bluff and, and whatever that case might be. Like, know what hill to die on. Don't die on every hill because there, you won't have very many lives left. Um, and so absolutely be authentic. Auth- absolutely be yourself. But sort of know how, how to balance that. If I reflect on my first work experience, um, I was a you know, female engineer in a mostly male environment. Um, but I wanted to be who I am and wear dresses and skirts. Um, And I actually felt like kind of going back to gut feel that it might be hurting me and people treated me slightly different because of that. And um, so I, uh, you know, I... I like to wear dresses and skirts. I had all these stuffed animals on my desk because I liked them and they were me and they made me happy when I saw them. But I felt like because potentially people didn't view me as seriously because of already existing other stereotypes, um, I took all of my stuffed animals home, which made my uh, the only other female engineer who sat right next to me feel very sad because she had her pile of stuffed animals and we actually originally had them all piled together. And I took my half home and brought all of my EE and CS textbooks from school. Yeah. They were completely irrelevant. It's like hardware circuits, digital system. Right. I mean, we're building like a website. Nobody cares about this. Yeah. But I brought all these hardcore 
books and put them on my desk. And I actually felt like uh, from that point on, all the new hires who didn't have that prior impression of me as the really girly one who they just assumed would be kind of dumb, treated me a little bit more seriously because they yeah. walk by my desk and see like, probabilistic graphical models, like circuits uh, and systems. Um, but it <laughs> was, it, it kind of like killed me a little bit on, yeah. the, on the inside. Um, and I, I'm still not quite sure like what. So why didn't you bring your, your circuits book and then have your stuffed animal po- like perched on top of your, your circuit book? Or why did you not have all of these books like scattered around your office and have all of these stuffed animals like elf on the shelf style, like all over, all over the books? Do you think that that would have made a difference? Honestly, I'm not sure, but... <laughs> but it wouldn't have killed you inside in the same way to sort of sadly take your pile of stuffed animals away. Um, but instead, I mean, I think that's sort of the, the piece of it where, you know, there is... You're showing your diamond when you're bringing those tech, textbooks in. Like, you legitimately are a technically skilled person who has that background. There's no reason why you shouldn't show that facet of your diamond and let it shine to everyone who's there. It just felt very irrelevant. But, (laughs) but I mean, it's not relevant because you wanted them to take you seriously and to know that you were technically skilled and that you knew what you were doing, but there's no reason why you had to be yourself and be just that engineer self and not also have those stuffed animals that you cutely perch on your books to sort of show, you know, so I guess, I guess my, my sort of pushback would be, why not have left those stuffed animals there and found some way for yourself that would have been, you know, that, that could integrate those, those pieces. I mean, it reminds me of when I first started doing research in like on venture capitalists and angel investors. And, you know, I was very quickly sort of dismissed. Like I would be interviewing these venture capitalists and they would sort of look at me. And one of them even said to me like, oh, are you here to sell me Girl Scout cookies? Like kind of facetiously. And I was sort of like, <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, and, and then, you know, I remember walking into the office of one of these venture capitalists and he had um, an autographed, well, he had an autographed baseball, um, from uh, uh, like Derek Jeter or somebody who was on the Yankees. And then he had an autographed basketball from somebody who was on the Knicks. And for whatever bizarre reason, um, I grew up like memorizing random statistics about, you know, the Knicks and the, and the Yankees and everything. And so I sort of made a comment about it and said something. And then he was like, he looked at me and it just didn't match, right? Again, it was like this incongruency where he was like, Are, you're totally just, you, you knew that you're, you're like, you're faking this so that you can get on my good side or whatever. And I realized, oh, okay, well, that's sort of that perception. But that's still like me. I still, you know, will, will go to the rails for the Yankees or the, you know, I will. But at the same time, I sort of was like, oh, okay, that didn't fit, well, you know what does fit? Asian, good at statistics and math. So I started talking about like the statistics behind what I knew and like dropping in the fact that I was an electrical engineer and this and that. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, she knows about the math and the statistics and it makes, it fits with the sports. And this, this man, this investor is to this day, one of the people that I still go to as like a mentor and as a trusted sort of person. But I could have very easily in the beginning been like, who is this person who like immediately assumes that I'm like faking this, right? You embrace pieces of yourself. And he also promised me, you know, courtside tickets to the, to the Knicks and everything, which I've never cashed in on. So I should, that reminds me, but you know, you, you can embrace all of these different facets of you, just like you can embrace stuffed animals. And if you've got those electrical engineering books out, we, we will, you know, it fits. It's the hard part there was it's not clear which of these different things I can do will actually work. Yeah. And also sometimes once people have an impression of you, it's harder to shift it. Right. So this was in the office setting where a bunch of people had already seen my stuffed animal. So I 
it's difficult to fix their opinion of me, but for all new people, I could do the textbook trick. Yeah. Um, and it's very hard to AB test these things, which I would love to be able to do, but right. I can't. Yeah. You can, um, you just have to, beca- you just have to get your PhD. I've been trying <laughs> to convince you for, for years to get your PhD, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, look, it doesn't always, it doesn't always work, right? There's lots of instances. This is like not a, like there are people who are like, what are the five steps that I need to follow to get my, to, to gain an edge? And I'm like, I wish I could give you the recipe. I wish I could say like, here are the five steps that you follow. This is really a perspective and there's going to be drawdowns and there's going to be disappointments. And that's sort of part of it. That's part and parcel of it as well. Is that, that, that aspect of it will, will sort of, will sort of be there. Um, what I think is, is sort of, you know, in terms of like, what do I, what do I do in terms of these, these impressions that people already have of me? Like there's people that were already working there. I mean, that's where delight comes in. When you show them some aspect of you that they hadn't previously considered that they're like, ah, I didn't think that about you. I didn't like, that wasn't something that was even on my, my radar. It's something surprising and counterintuitive. And, you know, it gives you that opportunity to then, and sometimes, you know, these opportunities come up and you, part of, part of that gut feel, part of that intuition is knowing that you have to take that opportunity, right? When I started my first academic job, um, at the Wharton school, I had a colleague who said, you know, you really need to get to know like the senior, you need to get to know the associate deans and the senior faculty. And you need to like go and have, you need to invite them to dinner and drinks and get to know them. And like, he was trying to give me good advice. Right. And so I was like, oh, okay. Okay. So I need to like go and ask the senior associate dean for dinner and drinks. Well, (laughs) So I asked the senior associate dean to dinner and drinks and we're sitting there having dinner and drinks. And he's like, so what do you want to talk about? And he was expecting, right? Like if I'm asking him to like, this is valuable time that he is giving up. So I better have something to say about like the annual fund or our curriculum or the state of the university and what we're doing in the future and our strategic plan. Whereas like, I was like, well, I was told to get to know you in this sort of informal, and it went disastrously because he was like, what is she talking? She's just wasting my time. What does she want to talk to me about? So a couple, and I was like, I can't do this, right? I can't be like him who they could just like have drinks and laugh and form this connection. A couple weeks after that, I was speaking at a conference and this associate dean happened to be on the same flight. We were flying into um, this conference hotel. And after we were on the flight, I realized that he's on the same plane and we're getting off. And I sort of say, oh, hi, you know, and he's like, oh, how are you getting to the hotel? Because he realized I was going to the same place. And I was like, oh, I'll probably, you know, just take, you know, an Uber or something. He's like, well, I have a private car waiting. And I was like, oh, well, I do too. It's just an Uber or private car. But, <laughs> but he's like, I have my private car waiting. Why don't you come? Why don't you ride with me? And I was like, okay, we're riding in this car. And there's no, there's no, like, there's no, I'm wasting his time. What's my agenda? Because he's already going there anyways. And so we had the freedom to kind of just talk about what we wanted to talk about. And, you know, we talked about his kids and, you know, his favorite music and how he went to this concert and all these sorts of things. And we really formed this connection based on this 45 minute car ride where I sort of seized that opportunity improvised by really being myself and understanding that and seeing how he kind of saw me from before and what he expected. And, and all of these things allow us to then, you know, dynamically navigate. So, you know, I talk a lot also in the book about how we shouldn't be too prepared and we, the, the, it kind of goes counter to a lot of what we believe, which is like go into situations and like really, really prepare hard. You should be prepared. Just don't be overprepared because when you're overprepared, that's when you're sort of tethered to here are the six things that I must say, or here are the things that I have prepared about prepared for. So if anything veers off course, I need to like bring it back to where, where I intended for it to go. Um, where instead where we sort of loosely prepare and we have, you know, those three rough ideas of things that we want to talk about, or the three things, like we go into a meeting and, and these are the three things that we want. Then we're able to sort of keep looping it back to one of those things. And we can dynamically sort of delight and guide 
and show that value we provide in a much more effective way so that we can have that deeper, richer connection with someone else. We have time for just um, one more question from the audience uh, that I want to ask you. So about age discrimination, um, I personally don't think it is about curiosity. I think that it's about younger managers who want to hang out with their younger, hang out with younger people because it's more fun. Younger managers also think older people are more stubborn and hard to manage. Do you have any comments on yeah. this? Yeah. I mean, the stubborn and hard to manage, that's embedded in that is curiosity, right? If you are curious about things, if you're curious about the sort of... Now, this is not to say that you're going to be hanging out now with those younger people in your office that like, oh, I'm curious about how the oxygen works. And then all of a sudden they're like, yeah, come hang out with us. Come to happy hour. Like, it's not going to be necessarily that. But when you're able to sort of show that you are, you're adaptable, you're curious, that you're not sort of that stubborn, um, this is the way that things are done. We've always done it this way. You know, that's also a generalization, but that, that this is the better way to sort of do it. You allow for that conversation. And what I was saying before is that like a lot of times we go into situations where it is about, we feel like we are in sell mode or in pitch mode or in convince mode, right? Where you actually shine is when you're able to converse and get into that, that conversation in the startup world. This is certainly the case, right? In so many, the, so many of the entrepreneurs that I work with, um, they give their pitch and they're sort of like, oh, well, you know, you know, they, they sort of like try and convince people so that they, they think that that pitch alone is going to be, okay, now I'm going to sign that check. And occasionally that happens. But really the point of a pitch is to start a conversation, is to put out enough sort of little cues so that the, peop- that, the, that the investors or your customers or whatever will then ask questions and want to learn more, right? Like Elon Musk doesn't go in, well, I mean, maybe now he does, but you know, in, in, in the early days, just uh, work with me for this example for a second, because Elon's, who, who knows where he's going, but like Elon doesn't go and say like, you know, I, all of like the physics and the, how this car works and all those sorts of things when the initial pitch, right? He says things like, this is, a, this is a car that is superior in performance with zero emissions, great for the environment, right? Then people are like, superior performance? What do you mean by that? Then he goes off on this, like, the physics and the, 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 the aerodynamics and all these sorts of things. And then people are like, wow, okay, check, right? Zero emissions. How do you intend to do that? Then he talks about all the environment. Check. So what people are really doing is, like, whenever you're interacting with someone, all they're doing is they're coming up with, like, okay, I have questions about this and this and this. And when you ask questions and when you engage in that, you allow them to sort of check those things off. And that's when you have much more of that effective kind of interaction. So we're just at time. So thank you very much to Laura Huang, associate professor at Harvard Business School and author of the new book, Edge, Turning Adversity into Advantage. Um, Just wanted to remind everyone here that copies of Laura's book are for sale, and she'll be pleased to sign copies um, in the back of the room following this program. Thank you.